Welcome back for the final session. So, this is our panel on the path forward, and I'm very happy to introduce the panelists. First on my right, Carrie Cordero. Carrie's at Georgetown, where she has launched and since the launch directed the National Security Studies Program, which I believe includes an LLM. Right, an LLM degree in National Security Law. How, how much I wish that had been there when I was in school. That's really cool. Uh, and also adjunct professor teaching there. Uh, Carrie's background uh, includes substantial experience at the Justice Department, among other things, uh, counsel to the Assistant Attorney General for the National Security Division, and extensive practice uh, in connection with the FISA court. Uh, she's also worked in, in a legal capacity at ODNI. To my left, Julian Sanchez. Julian is a fellow at the Cato Institute. Uh, he's written for innumerable publications, among other things, writing for The Economist, for Reason, for The Nation, serving as the Washington editor for Ars Technica, which is a really nifty website, um, and uh, also one of the uh, founding editors and authors at Just Security. Uh, the blog we've, we've mentioned a few times. So we, ha we have wonderful people to weigh in on um, questions of reform. And as a way to uh, ease our way into the topic, I'd like to spend time before we get into the details of particular reform proposals in different areas, um, set the stage by walking through the chronology of, of events over the past uh, year or almost a year. Uh, gosh, it's been that long already. And, and kind of keep us on the same page. There, there are a number of different reform initiatives that are out there, and I think this context will be very helpful. So I'll ask Carrie to, to launch us with, with that background. Okay. All right. Thank you, and, and thanks for uh, having me here. This has been a terrific day and a half. Um, so we thought it might be useful uh, sort of coming off of the conversations from the past day and a half, laying out sort of all the substantive issues that have been raised, to just briefly start with a little bit of a chronology of then how the reform proposals and that process uh, has evolved over the last nine months or so. And I think they can sort of be broken up into sort of three-month um, intervals in terms of how the reform ideas and actual um, proposals, some of them actually in, in text and in the form of legislative proposals, have evolved. So starting with the unauthorized disclosures, in June 2013, um, and, and, and just to sort of give my perspective on that a little bit, I think part of what we saw in terms of the immediate reaction from the intelligence community was somewhat of going into a defensive crouch. And, uh, and I think part of that is reflected in the fact that um, the community itself was um, frankly shell-shocked by the disclosures themselves, and uh, there was a... Uh, from my perspective at least, slow reaction from the political leadership to um, launch a uh, vigorous explanation of the underlying activities to tamp down some of the public concern that uh, was part of the initial outcry and reaction to the media release. So the summer sort of evolved in that way and, and there really from the government was sort of this reactive um, position to the uh, increasing disclosures that came out then as reported through the media. As we approached into fall, I think the fall became all about Congress and what was Congress going to do as a result of the prior several months of uh, public and uh, media discussion and debate. 
And so what we saw in the fall was, first of all, two main, there were a lot of different legislative proposals from various members of Congress, both in the Senate and the House. But there are sort of two main legislative proposals that are worth highlighting. One was a bill that was introduced by the Senate Judiciary Committee. The other was a bill introduced by the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. And both of those bills tried to address some of the issues raised by the disclosures. Um, and I would suggest that they focused on four main themes. Um, and those are, first, with respect to the bulk telephone metadata collection program, or the 215 program <coughs> that we've been discussing um, over the last day and a half, whether to end it and whether to legislatively end that particular program or bulk collection more broadly, or whether to modify the existing collection program. And so the Judiciary Committee bill fell on the side of ending the program. The Intelligence Community bill fell on the side of modifying the existing program. Second, adversarial process, um, whether or not to add some type of adversarial process to the FISA court um, uh, activities. And again, this came in the form, there's sort of two, there's, there's more than this, but I'll summarize it in terms of two um, varying proposals. One that would offer an institutional office of spe special advocate. The other sort of being an enabling procedure whereby the court could call upon an amicus to provide advice in special circumstances. And again, the judiciary bill um, came on, uh, and some of the other proposals that came out um, from members who sit on judiciary um, focused on this institutional office. Um, the intelligence bill focused more on uh, the enabling amicus. Uh, the third and fourth um, sort of themes that I would say um, emerge from those two bills are whether or not to limit in some way content collection, focusing on what we've discussed as the 702 program or the uh, amendments to FISA by the FISA Amendments Act of, of uh, the FISA Amendments Act of, uh, of 2008 which uh, focuses on content collection targeting non-U.S. persons reasonably believed to be overseas. And then the fourth theme would be transparency. Um, and there have been various bills, and, and each of these two bills contain provisions focusing on sort of what can be more public reporting, um, whether or not more decisions or opinions of the FISA court can be declassified, and items like that. So in the fall, there were a lot of hearings, um, both in the House and the Senate. Um, Julian and I participated in some of them. And, uh, and on top of that, the other sort of aspect I would draw out from the fall is that the federal government had sequestration going on at the same time. And that really did uh, present an overlay into the whole legislative debate. And, and I would suggest, from the perspective of the executive branch, presented a lot of challenges regarding how, the, how much attention and time the executive branch personnel could uh, be trying to solve the issues that were raised because they were dealing with a separate budget crisis, in which case many uh, of the agencies had their civilian workforces furloughed. And so I think that played into the activities of the fall. So fast forward now to the winter. So fall saw a lot of congressional action. Then in the winter, we had a few different developments that played into um, the evolution of the reform proposals. In the December, the Surveillance Review Group, which was the presidentially appointed outside 
panel of um, five former intelligence uh, community professionals or legal scholars that was tasked with reviewing um, surveillance activities. The surveillance re review group's report was issued in December, and that focused it on a range of issues that perhaps we'll um, talk about it a little bit in more detail uh, as we go through for the next, uh, for our session. Um, but they made a lot of proposals, over 40 different proposals, some of which then, bringing us to sort of the next milestone, the president either adopted or did not adopt when he made his speech on January 17th of 2014 and issued at the same time a PPD 28, Presidential Policy Directive 28, which contained a number of um, additional proposals to uh, implement reforms on the way signals intelligence is collected um, and analyzed and handled by the NSA. Um, the next thing that happened, interestingly, was about a week later, the PCLOB, the Privacy Civil Liberties Oversight Board, issued its report. So during the fall, the review group and the PCLOB both were conducting their investigations and reviews. And then the PCLOB report came out after the president's speech, which sort of was its own interesting <laughs> political dynamic because some of the recommendations made in the PCLOB were, um, were sort of overtaken by um, the changes that the president had already decided on by, uh, by January 17th. And I think as we go through also, we'll come back and talk more about what, um, what proposals he actually implemented in his speech and through the accompanying policy um, document. And then we fast forward um, from there. So then he sort of, uh, the president directed that within 90 days, the administration officials and the intelligence community professionals needed to come back to him with proposals about what to do um, about some of the reform ideas, in particular the, the telephone metadata program. And he directed that they come back with proposals by the end of March. And so we just saw a recent flurry of activity where at the end of March, on March 25th, the House Intelligence Committee put forth its own intelligence um, proposal bill, which picks up on some of the themes that were in the earlier legislative proposals, but approaches things in a little bit different way. Um, and then two days later, the White House announced its conceptual framework for the way forward in particular on the telephone uh, metadata program. And so I think that sort of brings us up to where we are today. And as we go through, we can talk more about sort of what the meat was in each of those proposals. Terrific. Well, uh, one thing I want to add is uh, to get on the table right now that there is a little bit of a forcing function in the sunset clause. Mm -hmm. uh, Section 215, which as we discussed yesterday, is the current statutory foundation for the bulk metadata program. There's, there are all these proposals now in place for how that, that will be changed. It's important to bear in mind that something's going to have to happen because it's going to have to be affirmatively renewed. Even to have the status quo continue with no change, you'd have to have something passed by Congress. Now, the sunset for the current authority expires, I don't know what month, but it's in 2015. It's, I believe, after the next election cycle. So that's another interesting political wrinkle. There's a, there's a question of what comes next if you don't act during the current Congress. Now, um, against the backdrop of, of that overview, which highlights for us that there are some existing presidential actions that already have reformed things in certain ways. There are proposals from multiple uh, semi or outside bodies, and then there are legislative proposals all in the mix contending with one another. We, we will come back to a lot of the details in a minute. 
uh, as a further bit of foundation, I think it would be wise for us to stop and ask, what is it that this larger complex process of reevaluation and possible reform is meant to achieve? What possible goals are to be served here? And Julian, I thought I'd ask you that question. What, what are the aims of this larger system of review? What should they be, rather? Um, well, I mean, so I mean, from you know the thirty thousand foot view, uh, um, one uh, one central one is, is to provide uh, public clarity about what the law is. I think even people who substantively, um, you know, support something like the the two fifteen bulk election program um, were somewhat dismayed to see that uh, they had, uh, as Nathan Seals put it, hidden a, a, an elephant in a, in a mouse hole, that you know, even if you think this is an authority they ought to have, um, that when you're implicating records of, of millions of ordinary people um, it, and an ordin you know, a sort of natural reading of the statute would not uh, make it clear to you that what you've authorized is uh, bulk collection, um, that, that, that's, that's not appropriate. That at a, at a, a very abstract level, um, and or you know, a, a, an informed person should be able to read the statute and have a, a general understanding of um, what the scale of activity it authorizes is. Um, I also think that uh, it's important to craft reforms here that address underlying authorities rather than sort of um, creating spot solutions to particular um, sort of controversial programs. Because I think what we're seeing um, with a number of proposals, certainly the the um, the presence here, and, and to a lesser extent the Hipsy one, is um, a sense that what needs to be addressed here is this one controversial program involving phone records, uh, and so what we need is a solution that involves some kind of limitation on the collection of phone records. Um, to my mind, the, you know, the underlying issue here is the court has interpreted relevance, which is language that cuts across a number of statutes, um, in such a broad way um, that it could easily be used to authorize very large-scale collection um, of, you know, a, a very large number of types of records. They, you know, have some um, argument to the effect of well, communication records are sort of special, and and so this argument is is especially um, applicable to these types of records. But a lot of kinds of records can show potential connections, or um, you know, are not retained indefinitely and might be useful in the future, um, and so would be nice to have. So you can. Uh, uh, you can be sure that if you later develop suspicion about a particular party, you can um, go back through them. Uh, so I, I would hope that you know an effective reform would address not um, a one program people are upset about, but uh, an, an underlying authority and, and to basically determine whether um, that legal power is cabined appropriately, not whether the current specific use of it um, is uh, is something we're comfortable with. Um, and to say, more generally, that is um, uh, something I think we, you know a, a problem we see is that we have reforms that are crafted with particular current activities in mind, uh, and so you have an interface between uh, restrictions in the statute and rules that are to some extent discretionary, um, on the assumption somehow that that um, you know the discretionary part is is going to be static. Um, we saw this to some extent in, in the case of uh, national security letters. Those were expanded pretty drastically in the Patriot Act, um, with the, the kind of the, the restriction that they be used uh, in authorized investigations. This was understood to mean full predicated investigations, and then the Attorney General guidelines uh, changed somewhat to allow the use of NSLs in preliminary investigations. Very quickly, you see 
um, most of them being used in preliminary investigations. So I think reform should sort of um, not assume stability in you know, discretionary activities, sort of assume, assume that what is discretionary may change. Um, and I also think you know, th there should be an aim to create uniformity across authorities. There's an enormous amount of overlap here. A lot of information you can get under 215, you can also get with a pen trap order, you can also get via physical search, you can also get via national security letter or grand jury subpoena. Um, and so, you know, certainly one concern I have is that if you suddenly say, well, we're going to raise the bar very high for acquisition of data under something like 215, which requires judicial approval, and then do nothing to change the underlying standard for, let's say, national security letters, which is clear, the FBI prefers to use anyway when they can, because you don't have to go, you know, make an application to the FISC, um, you sort of get a, 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 special, a special agent in charge to sign off on them. Um, you're essentially pushing them toward the less overseen authority, which seems like a, a sort of huge mistake. So um, I think it's important to look at the system as a whole. So one, one difference between, say, USA Freedom and, uh, and some of the other proposals, including HIPSI, is that it creates a standard um, that it attaches to relevance wherever relevance appears. Um, so it's not you can get records that are relevant to investigation and pertain to an agent of a foreign power or the direct contacts or the activities of a, a subject of an investigation and establishes that across pen register, NSL, and, uh, and 215. Otherwise, you end up, again, with, with a situation where you've, you've, um, you've essentially just told them, if you want less restrictions, go use the other authority. I think that uh, balloon squeezing effect that you've identified is a really important principle to bear in mind that it's isolating the, the different authorities and treating them under the microscope over here and ignoring the rest misses the systematic interplay amongst the, or potential systematic interplay amongst them. Carrie, what about you? What are some first principles or larger goals that should be um, guiding this reevaluation process we're living through? Well, I think one um, point that's, that's important to bring out is that none of, I think there is a real question with respect to the reform proposals in terms of what goals are we trying to achieve through these proposals. And to some extent, there needs to be a recognition that, number one, in none of the reviews that have taken place to date have there been any revelations of intentional abuses or wrongdoing by NSA or the intelligence community. So there have been... Um, there is legitimately sort of you know concern about the fact that the public did not uh, perhaps understand the way certain laws were being implemented. Um, there's legitimate criticism with respect to the existence and sort of whether or not compliance matters were handled appropriately. But there have been no allegations from the review group, from the PCLOB, um, or or uh, that have been. Uh, revealed through the declassified opinions of the FISA court of intentional abuse. And so with that backdrop, the question that becomes, okay, so then what problem are we trying to fix? And do the legislative proposals or um, proposals being made by the administration actually fix existing problems? Um, some of the proposals that have um, been put forth are really ideas that are not new. Uh, members of Congress who have 
had longtime criticisms of intelligence community operations, um, some of the positions from the advocacy organizations that are being expressed with respect to concern about surveillance activities. These are not really new criticisms. They are simply uh, now concerns that have a platform to be addressed, and so this is sort of the moment for those um, proposals to either take place or not. So I think one goal is that, that should be an overarching goal is to fix actual problems. And from my perspective, I think the actual problem that has been revealed through the disclosures, and I think that there are some members in Congress who share this view as well, is one of uh, public confidence. There clearly is a, uh, has been an effect on public confidence that the intelligence community and NSA in particular is abiding by uh, lawful process and doing its business appropriately. And so I think we need to take a careful look at which proposals will address that concern. And that's where I see um, some of the proposals with respect to more transparency, public communication um, with respect to the activities the community is doing, better explanation of um, perhaps uh, some of the FISA court opinions. But I think the transparency piece is important. Um, I think there are significant questions whether on the flip side, for example, proposals to uh, require advanced court approval for the individual queries that are uh, put into the telephone um, uh, to obtain telephone records is really a fix that is going to fix a problem versus um, significant additional bureaucratic and legal hurdles that will delay intelligence operations without sort of really adding a substantive um, value add. You know, your last comments remind me of a conversation that was taking place between the sessions where uh, Tim and I were talking and some others here about how from the, from the point of view of, of those who work in the intelligence community, they've got their mission, they want to be able to accomplish it as efficiently and as effectively as possible. Um, and there's obviously a trade-off. Uh, on one hand, the, the more you maximize the, the ease of operations for them, the more you create conditions where the public may begin to worry about abuse, worry about infringements or mistakes or malfeasance, what have you. And so you're constantly trading off constraints that build public confidence and, and help reinforce the, uh, the idea that this is a rule-bound activity and it's democratically accountable against operational efficiency and effectiveness. And, and there's, I think it's foolish for us to aim for a situation that would either be perfectly efficient from the operator's viewpoint or perfectly trusted by everyone. You're never going to get to either of those extremes. What you're really trying to get to is the best possible combination that maximizes effectiveness with trustworthy constraint, if you will. And we went through all this before. We went through this as the, the opening address by Admiral Inman emphasized. We had this breakdown of trust the, the series of revelations and, and, and widespread sense that we need to reformulate things in the 1970s, we did eventually get back to something of an equilibrium. We had an equilibrium that was reached by the late 70s, never satisfied anybody. I mean, everybody. There were plenty of people who were on the operational side who felt too constrained and plenty of people on the side of monitoring for accountability who felt like it wasn't constrained enough. You're never going to satisfy everyone but it was relatively stable for a while. We're now at a new point that's just like that, where the, the same sense of things having come unstuck 
uh, has arisen, and we're, I think, groping ultimately towards trying to find that, that new balance. What's a little different here is that it's against the backdrop of a closely related but, but distinct uh, disequilibrium associated with what we think about reasonable expectations of privacy in the digital age. And, and I think the discussion on the Fourth Amendment yesterday on the panel with, with uh, Ben and Hani and, and Ahmed nicely emphasized this for us. There, there's ways that the information environment has evolved that simply require a lot of first-order rethinking. And it may or may not lead to dramatic change in the legal and policy architecture. But that's what makes this environment, I think, a much more complex process of restoring a relatively functional balance than what we had before. I actually want to reject this, this uh, seemingly very popular notion that like the primary goal of reform is basically to assuage the lamentably paranoid American people um, so they can be confident in, in the intelligence agencies again. Did someone say that? Um, well, I mean, you, you, I think you often get this sense that, that you know, certainly from, from the, the president uh, um, and, you know, I think just to some extent it was you know, subterranean in, in his remarks that, that um, you know, the real problem here is um, restoring public trust as opposed to, um, you know, narrowing authorities that are, um, that are so, so potent that they, um, that they do invite potential abuse. Um, I mean, I think the, the, the inability to detect, you know, at this point, um, willful abuse is is, um, is is sort of the wrong test, right? Um, for a couple of reasons. One is you know you don't you don't want to wait for the the smoking gun that's a mushroom cloud. The sort of scale of these disorders is so large that um, you know what you, what you want to do is limit the ability after some future event for a system that's in place to be used in a way um, that violates civil liberties of very large numbers of people very quickly. Um, and you know, second, I think you, you just sort of have to assume, given history here, um, that you're not going to um, you're not going to detect minimally savvy abuses, um, both because of the incredible scale of uh, of the activity, um, because you know, from what we know historically, um, when people know they're doing something illegal, they do take measures to obscure what they're doing, um, and because again, the, the recent sort of history shows that. Um, you know, even when people seem to be acting in good faith, these are these systematic uh, violations of the rules can go um, undetected for three years until they're they're, they're ultimately self-reported. Um, so, you know, I think the, sort of the assumption has to be: you need a system um, that minimizes the capability to uh, you know for abuse, because you can't assume you know with with uh, with all respect to the, the diligent efforts of. of uh, our friends in compliance, that, that you will detect um, an actual malicious actor's um, non-witless abuses. I take your point about trust really is a term that gets bandied about in, at too high a level of abstraction here. And at least as I'm using it, and as I think a lot of people, including the president, are when they talk about public trust, it's not, well, let's just get the public back on board so we can get on about our business, calm the public down, assuage them, right, the way a, a parent might a child. I, I I think that the, the right way to think about it is using the word trust and the public's trust as a, as a shorthand for establishing an agreed, informed consensus on the degree of uh, democratic accountability through transparency and, and a comfort level with, with uh, what the operations are. And, and here I'm, it makes me think about Jeff Stone, who was uh, – the, the, the academic Jeff Stone was on the president's surveillance review group, that, and he recently wrote an op-ed that was much read where he said, you know, I came into the review group process very prepared to be very skeptical of the NSA folks. 
and paraphrasing a bit, he says, I, I was very impressed with these people and, and so forth. There, it was much better than I thought it would be in terms of the, just the sort of things the last panel and that John and others were talking about. But he also concludes at the end with a very strong statement uh, to the effect that, like, part of living in a free society is you nonetheless don't trust with a capital T these institutions. You can't ever entirely trust them. It's not that we don't trust John or Raj or Chris. I think we've, everyone who's been here the past day or so can understand how, how very trustworthy these, these people are. It, but institutionally, part of living in a free society is not trusting with a capital T. And so maybe it's like Reagan, it's trust but verify. So back, back to uh, from a higher level of generality, let's dive down into details. Um, we, could start, we could start with many different places, the different review group recommendations. Since the president has, in fact, weighed in, the most formal thing he's done is PPD 28, this Presidential Policy Directive 28 from January, where he, he touched on a number of the issues we've been touching on. I'd love to hear from both of you what, what if anything, struck you as, as very useful in that set of decisions and what struck you as actually potentially problematic or simply needing more attention. Um, Carrie, do you have a, a, sure. a rogues list and a favorites list from that presidential document? Sure. Okay, so on January 17th, again, so the president gave um, a very big public speech same that thing. took place at the Department of Justice and at the same time released this presidential policy directive, which was a new directive governing the conduct of signals intelligence activities. And I think, you know, many of us sort of uh, on all sides of these issues, you know, really were, um, you know, waiting to hear what he would say because the, I think his, he could have gone in different directions. Really, the president, given um, much of the concern regarding the activities that have been revealed, um, could have made very, very dramatic changes. So he could have said, as of today, we are going to end the telephone metadata um, program. He could have said that we're going to um, sort of immediately look at whether or not we should stop doing collection in bulk, which is sort of, you know, one of the issues that has um, arisen of significant concern. Um, he could have addressed uh, desires to curtail the 702, the FISA Amendments Act, collection. And he could have endorsed the Office of Institutional Special Advocate. So there, there really could have been some dramatic, um, immediate changes that he could have taken. However, he took a different tack. And so what he said was, instead, um, when I came into office, I, uh, you know, had a healthy skepticism for the intelligence community operations. I took a look at these programs. I directed my team to look at these programs. We made some changes, but we're comfortable with where we are now. We think that what we're doing is lawful and it's right. That being said, there, there are some changes that we think um, we will make. And so the, uh, the reforms um, that he adopted in January um, covered a range of, of issues. Um, uh, one is that the directive clarified um, sort of existing policy and practice. Um, it adopted the surveillance review group's um, recommendations to uh, adopt a risk management approach. So I think in that policy directive, you see a lot of the risk management themes that came from the review group. Um, it announced sort of more transparency um, uh, efforts, including endorsing the idea of this outside amicus or an outside panel of special um, uh, advocates who could be appointed to assist the court in its deliberations. Um, he tasked the AG and the DNI with adding restrictions on the use of incidentally acquired 702 data um, with respect to an American communicant in criminal cases. 
he directed some changes that may take place with respect to national security letters. Um, we already talked about yesterday some of the very specific changes that he made to the 215 program. A significant change that was announced um, where, well, potentially significant, I think, is, is probably the better way to categorize it. But the new presidential policy directive includes limits on the retention and use of uh, foreigners' personal information. And so I think this is one area in the policy directive that, frankly, is a little unclear at this point, at least from an outside observer's perspective, in terms of how... Um, what the effect of that provision will be on actual operations and analysis. Um, so basically, what the directive um, uh, put forth is that in the past, the intelligence community has adopted special procedures for the handling of U.S. persons' information, so Americans, resident, aliens, U.S. corporations. Um, and what he has now directed is that many of those same procedures or some type of procedures that will, will be developed in line with the way that the community currently treats uh, Americans' information will be applied to <coughs> foreigners' information. Now, in this case, we really don't know how that is going to play out in terms of the actual procedures that, could, that will be written. It could be that they, the community will adopt procedures that are identical to the way that U.S. person information is handled, which really would be quite a dramatic change in the way that signals intelligence information is currently um, analyzed and processed, or it could be that they have something else in mind that will be sort of less dramatic, but I don't think that we know at this point. But that's um, sort of one area that I think is a potential significant change that could have very significant effects on the way that the community sort of efficiently processes foreign intelligence information, can share it with foreign partners, and things like that. And I'm not yet, have, I have not yet seen the information that is convincing that that is um, solving a problem that has been identified. Julian, Julian how do you feel about um, what you're seeing in that document? Well, I mean, I think, I think um, for the most part, what Carrie said there, I think the, the, um, the practical import of this will depend on how these sort of general um, mandates are, uh, are actually translated into specific guidelines. Um, uh, I think it's worth noting that, that um, the enhanced protections for foreigners um, you know, I, I think really fall out of, to some extent, something uh, Chris Inglis talked about a couple times, which is the you know this idea that um, you know we're sort of all on one network now, and so there isn't this kind of segregation between um, you know ordinary civilian communications channels and um, you know while well, the the kind of closed um, government network that you, that you need to monitor for intelligence purposes um, that. Uh, the rules were previously, I think, crafted on the sort of premise that, for the most part, um, just as a practical matter, when you're collecting on foreigners, they're going to be, you know, primarily um, you know, either bad actors or um, uh, you know, members of foreign governments, at least. Um, and you know, there's, there's no reason you would end up collecting large volumes of certain ordinary, uh, ordinary people's information, and so um, enhanced protections are. are would, wouldn't really make sense because why would you be collecting that stuff? Um, you know, there's always been some, some amount of bulk collection, but um, I think it's much, it's much more the case now that in the process of acquiring uh, you know, intelligence about 
members of terrorist groups or foreign governments, um, you in the process are, are, are doing an intake that sweeps much more broadly. Um, and also secondarily, um, because, because uh, what you're looking for is, is often stuff that's transiting on civilian networks. To enhance general intelligence capabilities, you end up um, collecting on people who are not, again, necessarily um, in the, you know, in themselves bad actors or, or linked to foreign powers. Um, so I think of a story that ran on, on Glenn Greenwald's site uh, about a, a, a kind of email thread within NSA um, discussing uh, basically how to hunt sysadmins. Um, the idea is that these are people with the keys to the kingdom, and so. Um, you, know, you, you essentially want to collect on people in the IT departments for large networks because you need their passwords and the ability to compromise their systems in the future in, uh, in case a target you need to directly, you know, you sort of want to primarily collect on is using a network that you otherwise have no access to. Um, and so I think in, in part these enhanced protections um, are, are a recognition to a response to the fact that, um, you know, there's a lot of collection now happening that isn't on Anwar al-Awlaki, it's on the guy in the IT department, um, not because you care about him, but because you care about um, what it does for your capabilities to know um, what his communications contain. So, so uh, I want to pick up on one thing that Julian said, which he mentioned um, very briefly, bulk collection. And so there's another aspect of the PPD that um, I think is worth highlighting from the perspective of, uh, one, what goal is it uh, intended to achieve, and two, how will it actually be implemented, uh, and perhaps three, if implemented in certain ways, will it be uh, have sort of a significant effect on the intelligence community's ability to provide warning of significant um, events going on in the world that are of intelligence value. And that particular provision pertains to um, a limit that PPD 28 puts on the use of certain type of bulk collection. And what the PPD says is that uh, certain information will only be collected, and I'm paraphrasing, but certain information will be collected in bulk um, only if it meets six specific criteria. And just to paraphrase these, the six criteria are espionage, counterterrorism, um, information about weapons of mass destruction, information relating to cyber threats, force protection, and information relating to transnational crime or uh, perhaps sanctions enforcement. And those are sort of six very discrete categories. Now, you might say, okay, well, those sound pretty important and pretty logical, and maybe that's all that uh, the community should be collecting about. And again, this is, just pertains to bulk collection. But on the other hand, um, those six categories perhaps don't include information regarding foreign affairs more broadly, um, uh, information regarding sort of areas of instability, for example, uh, it, the run-up to Arab Spring, events in Syria, um, uh, perhaps the recent uh, events in Crimea. So there is foreign intelligence information that would fall outside of those six criteria. So the question is, is how, uh, what exactly will the effect of this type of limiting provision be? Part of the question to that answer, um, I certainly don't have the answer to because it, it would fall on what percentage of NSA's overall SIGINT collection is this type of bulk collection that this um, provision is meant to address. If it's a small percentage, then perhaps this is fairly inconsequential. If it's a large percentage, then perhaps this substantive limitation on what 
the NSA, uh, the purposes for which it can collect information could be significant in terms of the conduct of uh, uh, collecting intelligence information in order to protect the national security. I mean, being able to flip this slightly, right, is uh, that one of the kind of classic categories of foreign intelligence information alongside, you know, information that protects the national security of the United States or um, protect against clandestine intelligence activities is information that relates to the, the conduct of the foreign affairs of the United States, um, including information that, you know, relates to the intentions of a foreign power or other foreign entity, um, which is, I mean, obviously so kind of incredibly broad that, um, that under that category of foreign intelligence information, um, there's not a huge amount of stuff you can't plausibly collect, um, you know, with a, with a um, you know, some rationale that, that, you know, in aggregate, that, that, you know, this is information that would, um, you know, enhance our ability to understand um, what the government of a foreign country is likely to do or a foreign, um, you know, some other foreign political entity. So, you know, whether or not you think additional categories should be added to these, um, in some sense, if you don't, if you don't cabinet a little bit more narrowly than the, uh, again, the sort of traditional definition of foreign intelligence, given the sort of enormous collection capabilities, you end up um, without without very serious restrictions on um, on collection on again ordinary people, because you know, it might shed light on something a, a foreign entity is going to do. One thing I seem to recall being. In the statement, there was there was some reference in the PPD. I thought about information sharing with private industry, if I recall correctly. And this is something that one of the, one of the themes that comes out in, in articles about NSA doing this or that. You often see, especially uh, in, for, in foreign sources, concern that one of the things NSA might do is gather information on company X abroad, uh, information that would be useful to an American private business in competition with that entity you know, and, and passing it along or somehow sharing it in a way that favors uh, U.S. industry. Now, I'm actually, myself, not aware of any stories over the past nine months of disclosures that actually vindicate that concern, but it comes up a bunch nonetheless, and I have the general impression that uh, people abroad generally don't believe U.S. denials, that, that when we deny that we share information to aid our private industry that way. Do either of you recall if either the president or any of these other uh, documents have talked about making more clear that we do not do this, perhaps even making it explicitly clear that it should not and cannot be done, more clear than it is? Yeah, I mean, it's in there. There is a, there is a you know, trade secrets and other information about private economic activity shall not be shared except for sort of certain limited protective purposes, but that there's an explicit prohibition on I, mean, I think this has been sort of the longstanding yeah. policy, but... Um, do, do you think this actually is something that's just a, an, an impression problem, a PR problem, or do you think it actually maybe really is something we're sort of doing on the margins that we I, need to police again? No idea. Yeah. I, I don't know what, how, I don't know how you would know that. Um, Susan, you want to weigh on that? Oh, wait, here comes the microphone. The Espionage Act makes that kind of sharing, not from the government to private industry, but economic espionage a crime, and that you, the U.S. is, if not unique, fairly close to unique in making economic espionage a crime, whereas other governments, whether it's France, Japan, um, multiple other governments, but I know France and Japan for sure, explicitly have that as part of government function to do that kind of spying and share it with. So I think there is a perception problem, but it's a perception that we can't fix, except, you know, the, the statement in, by the president <coughs> that Julian just mentioned 
uh, and, and said, look, that's an explicit statement, but a policy we've had forever is exactly right. We've had that policy forever. And you can find it stated in various places obliquely, including in National Research Council studies. I think it was useful that the President said so, but there's nothing more that we can do. If other nations do that as policy, they have trouble believing we So, so it's, both, it's both a perception problem that's, that puts us in a light that's really not fair, and also there's, a, there's an uneven playing field problem that others actually affirmatively do this. Uh, Alex wanted to weigh in, and, and perhaps Tim as well. I just wanted to point out it's section 1C. 1C, okay, good. Tim? I guess my thought here is that it's easy when we're talking about reform proposals to jump to the rules um, of what should the rules be for all these different activities and what should the restrictions be. And Carrie's kind of laid out her theory that you should be solving actual problems. Julian's saying, no, these are broader issues that we have to address even if they haven't resulted in something like a willful violation. Um, I guess my question is, it seems to me that one of the big issues is institutions um, and strengthening those institutions before we even get to the rules. And let me give you an example. Um, I was pleased to see a lot of people thought the idea of a chief technologist at the FISA court would be a good idea. Um, here's another thought. We sometimes hear proposals to change the rule to make the FISA court make more granular decisions. And we've already seen that happen with the telephone metadata program. I believe that the seed numbers now have to be approved individually by the court. Um, the pushback for that uh, proposal is always, this is going to slow things down. This is going to be a nightmare. There's going to be five lawyers at the Justice Department and, you know, another hundred lawyers at the, at the NSA, uh, all passing paper back and forth and then going to one of just a few federal judges appointed to the FISA court making these individualized decisions. And um, it strikes me, and I, I just sort of checked this again during the conversation, both the pen trap part of FISA and the business records part of FISA refer to magistrate judges, which I don't believe have ever been used. And, but it, it's sort of like, why the heck not? I mean, why can't you streamline this process, beef up the FISA court, have more staffing at the FISA court, employ things like magistrate judges, make sure that your streamlined process, you know, an analyst sitting at their computer who has to make a decision that currently is just a decision that's internally reviewed by John's office or maybe after the fact or consult with general con counsel, why couldn't you set up a computer system so that decision very quickly gets passed through a review process uh, at justice or maybe even doesn't, goes straight to a judicial officer such as a magistrate judge for approval or denial. Um, that's not changing the substance of the rule, but it's changing where that rule is being uh, administered. It's changing it from an executive branch official to a judicial branch official without any loss of speed necessarily. Um, but it requires significant institutional change. I mean, institutional change internally to the executive branch, institutional change at the court, and it's constantly, you know, that question has always, to me, been you know, sort of very frustrating because those on the outside seem to think, oh, that's really simple. Why don't they just do that? Those on the inside are sort of like tearing their hair out and saying, oh, my gosh, that would be impossible. That would never happen. Um, you know, have we got the cart before the horse here? Because it seems to me that instead of debating these rules, we should be debating first how to make the institutions that are going to work to apply those rules in a way that provides for maybe additional oversight that we then want to change the rules to, to allow. Sure. So, um, so Tim, you're absolutely right that those provisions do include this um, 
uh, option for going to a magistrate judge. As far as I know, that never has um, been implemented. And so what we have um, as a practical matter is all matters that are presented to a court under FISA go to the uh, judges who are designated on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Now, I can speculate as to why it is that um, the magistrate option has never been used. And I think that there are issues with respect to uh, geography, technology, expertise, um, and sort of government uh, business process that all fall into why, uh, along the line, nobody has said, hey, this sounds like a really great idea. Why don't we do it? So geography, if you start using magistrate judges who are all over, all over the country, you know, you have to sort of build in all the security. The, one of the reasons the FISA court was created to begin with was so that you could develop a uh, set of judges who develop expertise in intelligence law and national security matters so that you could, uh, the government could control, as a matter of physical security, the information that is presented to them and the data um, uh, you know, the documents and things like that, all in a secure environment. Um, if you start spreading that out nationally, that uh, becomes an issue. Regular courthouses in uh, in Austin don't necessarily have uh, secure phones, secure computers, um, secure uh, storage space, and sort of all of those mechanics that go into trying to implement something like that. Um, however, I would um, also suggest that uh, with respect to various proposals to add additional FISA court process, for example, this idea of adding, uh, you know, the well, what's now I understand to be um, the case today, and which is in um, uh, some of the proposals going forward. I think the administration's proposal going forward on 215 is to is to have this advanced court approval for the RAS queries. So. Um, so, so my argument is not solely one of sort of speed and efficiency. It's also one of value. So part of the argument is that when we are uh, focusing the attention of the government lawyers, analysts, and, and judges who are, and, and manage, government, uh, executive branch <laughs> management personnel, lawyers, and the judges themselves, when we are focusing so much of their attention on uh, what is constitutionally not protected information, right, which is uh, records, as was discussed yesterday in the discussion on 215, digits dialed. I actually think that we run the risk of focusing their attention on the matters that do not as much significantly impact civil liberties and privacy versus allowing them more space, time, effort, attention to those cases or matters that might be presented to them that do substantially impact uh, civil liberties and privacy. For example, applications that target um, U.S. persons, applications that might be sort of complex and novel and impact civil liberties in, in some other way. So I think in terms of evaluating these proposals, again, that sort of comes to, you know, w what are the actual goals? If our goals are to make sure that the FISA court is giving its best attention to matters that substantially um, impact civil liberties and privacy, then why are we coming up with proposals that are going to increase the time they spend on records check, which if, if you were in the criminal side could be attained by a subpoena tapped out by an AUSA and doesn't even go to a judge, versus content-based collection that substantially impacts privacy. Julian? Do you sure. So, I mean, to, I mean, there are logistical reasons that, that – uh, for not, not going the magistrate judge route, but the size of the, the fisc has been increased in the past. It could presumably be increased again. I mean, there's a, you know, a, a, not an infinite supply of uh, security cleared uh, judges with the proper expertise, but I, I don't, you know, 
I don't know if it would be um, completely implausible to double the size of the uh, of the FISCA if necessary. And I'm also not sure how um, you know how serious the burden is. If as as uh, Stephen Beverly keeps uh, reminding us, there are only you know a few hundred queries, let's say, against the um, this database annually. And, you know, I assume that's not um, you know literally you know here's this number, here's the next number, but probably much more often here are five cell phone you know we founded a, a training camp in Kandahar and uh, and you know so here's the list of, of 50 numbers that, um, that we you know we pulled from those address books um, I, don't, I don't know in practice I mean you know, literally I don't know because I don't know you know what the um, what the scenario is for actually acquiring um, the particular numbers they're feeding as seeds but um, you know a combination of Expanding the capabilities on the uh, organization side to meet the additional burden, um, and you know, finding ways to streamline the process so that you know, in practice, the burden is not that great. I think you, you know, you can, um, you can, you can, those those two things can sort of meet in the middle and, and, and render this tractable. Um, more generally, I just want to sort of step back and, and, and say um, that is actually your your broader um, concern that with, with too much narrow focus on the rules is one uh, one I share. I have almost the inverse frustration from uh, from Chris Inglis. He was sort of annoyed that we talked so much about capabilities and and, and not about the specific authorities. Um, I think we do spend a lot of, t you know, maybe too much time um, debating the specific rule that's going to be used to access data under a specific program um, and not enough time sort of talking about broader architectures. Um, so, you know, when you think about something like uh, Turbine, which is sort of the delivery system for, for exploits that appears to be sort of integrated with the backbone, um, you know, we can have a conversation about, um, all right, if you've got this sort of scalable exploit delivery mechanism, what should the, um, what should the legal standard and the evidentiary standard be to, um, to, you know, use a particular selector and target those machines for um, exploitation? But, you know, kind of before that, I think, you, you know, you want to ask, do we think it's a good architectural decision to plant an exploit delivery device on the internet backbone? Is that is that a, a design decision um, that is that is sort of robust um, over time? Before I encourage the audience to ask a few more questions, I want to give each of you a chance to identify if, if there is something like this for you. Two or three things that, at the end of the day, you you hope you really hope are in fact done to change the status quo, or conversely, something you really hope does not happen as a result of this process. And it may be that you don't have such a list, but if there are a couple of things that, bearing in mind the audience is not just everyone here, but it seems like we've got a lot of people watching online, so express your views. This is your chance. Okay. Um, so I think transparency is important. This is fortunately something that seems to be pretty broad consensus about, um, that, that we can be more transparent than we are being. Um, you know, we hear a lot about the, the, the robust oversight from all these Article Three judges on the FISC and the committees in Congress um, without really recognizing the extent to which those oversight mechanisms normally function because they're embedded in a broader public system where um, judges have reputational concerns. You know, am I going to be smacked down by the appellate court? Um, is the Harvard Law Review going to make fun of my, uh, you know, my, uh, my outcome-driven ruling? Um, the extent to which legislators, right, you know, rely on the sort of lobbying as legislative subsidy, rely on um, outside expertise to, to sort of increase their, um, their bandwidth in a way that, that um, you, 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 you is not available if you're just counting on a very tiny number of cleared staff without um, that ability to draw in outside expertise. So um, transparency, I think, is, is something that will make all the other oversight, oversight mechanisms work better. Um, 
you know, restoring the um, um, you know the idea of a nexus to um, you know a particular uh, suspect uh, again across authorities, national security letters, two fifteen pen registers. Um, this is uh, this language that's in the USA Freedom Act that the Senate unanimously approved in two thousand five and was um, swapped out in conference at the last minute. Um, just establishing that when you're getting data, there um, there needs to be some factual basis connecting it in a particularized way um, to some person or entity that you have you have actual suspicion about. Um, and then third, I guess this is more generally, um, across authorities, but certainly in particular 702, kind of ending this this shell game I think we see, um, certainly you see this in, in, in the, sort of the logic of the 215 order where um, you have much, much broader up front collection justified by restrictions on the back end um, that are somewhat optional. And then kind of after the acquisition occurs, um, the sense that, well, you know, why do we have these back end restrictions? We've lawfully required this information. So, you know, why would you make us jump through all these hoops to, um, to use information we already have? And, you know, again, I think we see this pattern over time where, um, you know, this, this collection up front premised on back-end restrictions serving the function that a narrower aperture on the front end would have served in the past. Um, and then over time, hey, we've got it anyway. Let's loosen the back-end restrictions. Um, you know, I think we want a, a sort of more holistic approach here that, that, that um, locks in both things at the same time. So, um, you know, again, you know, if, for example, you are permitting, let's say under 702, um, broader sort of front-end collection of American data on the premise that you're not targeting them, um, that you don't then on the back end say, well, you know, now, now that we've collected it, we can target them at the query side. Karen? Okay, so I'll do, I'll do uh, one uh, objective that I hope is achieved and, and one proposal that I hope does not see the light of day. So, uh, so on, the, uh, on the what I hope is achieved is I think one of the, uh, as sort of a matter, a, a principle that I hope will be sort of a guiding principle in terms of the reform proposals that are before Congress is uh, I do think it is very important that whatever legislation uh, is put forth or potentially passed is very clear and understandable. Um, I think the SSCI and Senate Judiciary, the Senate Intelligence and Senate Judiciary Committee bills um, are pretty good on this front. Um, I think the uh, recent House intelligence bill uh, perhaps could be clarified a little more. I think, I think even for sophisticated um, uh, readers of that text, particularly with respect to when the timing of the directive that would be issued by the court on the queries and whether or not those directives are programmatic or individual per each query um, could be made more clear. And, you know, this is part of the process of legislation, and I expect that, you know, as that bill gets debated amongst committee members <clears throat> and things like that, you know, these types of changes will be made. But I think as an overarching goal, it's very important that whatever comes out of this process, if it is legislation, is very clear and very transparent, and uh, everybody is on the same page as to what that text yeah. authorizes. I mean, the Hipsy hips Bill is like the, the legislative equivalent of a Rube, Rube Goldberg machine. I, I did a kind of longish um, post of Just Security looking about this. It's structurally super weird in a whole bunch of ways, and uh, um, there's a ton of ambiguities and... and uh, um, 
frankly, you know, constitutional questions about whether the effect of the new authority there is, this is something I certainly would not want to happen. Um, you, know, you can read the new authority the Hipsey Bill creates as mandating the creation of new records and potentially the collection or retention of new data. So not just um, you need to kind of reformat something and store stuff we need in a format that makes it easy to um, aggregate and cross-reference it, seems fine, um, but could be read to basically say, you must now store and retain and collect data you know, in, in record form that you would not otherwise do, which, you know, if nothing else, I think uh, is sort of constitutionally dubious. You know, right? If the logic of Smithy Maryland is um, you lose your privacy expectation because this is information you know you're sort of voluntarily submitting um, and that is being retained by the company, and then you say, well, but they're only retaining it explicitly uh, under a mandate to aid government investigations, um, you know, that, that seems like a, a kind of a two-step that, um, that should be constitutionally suspect. Julian, on that last point, it, so we're talking about telephone metadata. Is, is that actually, do you think, possibly purposeful on the theory that though yeah. phone companies have for long, for their own business records, kept toll dialing records, but frankly, we don't really live in that world anymore. As we move to a, a, a bandwidth-based service, right. they wouldn't otherwise yeah. keep it. No, I think it probably is. I mean, and it's, because of course, it's not just telephone metadata. It's electronic communications records generally. Um, so um, yeah, I mean, it's very easy to imagine um, some online communication service that has no reason to collect information about um, you know, who you're communicating with or other features of the communication in the same way that um, Comcast normally has no reason to process or store any of the details of um, you know, who I'm opening an IM session with or who I'm emailing, right? I mean, they, well, th this all is Comcast the needs to look at is where the packets are going. They don't need to know anything below that level in the OSI stack. Um, and so I think, you know, one, one consequence of this is potentially to um, create a system where that information is retained in a place where um, the government has, has access. And I think this that. is really important. I mean, recall that the Internet metadata collection program, eventually, the, the long before it was all revealed to the public, the government simply stopped seeking renewal because companies just didn't keep the records in a way that, was, that facilitated this. And were we to move to a model that, by statute, began to require companies to... Well, maintain records. The, the, so the Internet Metadata Program, as I understood, was, was under the pen trap authority and on the backbone. So it wasn't actually about acquisition of records. It was about, um, it was about you know, collection of metadata as it flowed through, you know, the, the, flowed through the pipes. Right. Well, I'm just, so Chris the other night said that you know, the, one of the core problems was it simply it just didn't work very well. The information wasn't presented right. in a way that we were able to collect it. You could avoid that problem if companies began to have an obligation that, to, to keep that data, even though they otherwise wouldn't. Right. But again, I think that you know, if, if you look at the sort of the reasoning of, of Smith v. Maryland, it becomes substantially more constitutionally dubious if the premise here is you're waiving you're waiving your expectation of privacy um, because information is kept uh, in records that the government has mandated, not for some independent right. purpose, which is often the I case. I think that's but exactly right. Specifically, to wait investigations. Right. So just to follow up on two points, so uh, a final thought on, on the HIPSI proposal. It also, it is, it is possible, um, the HIPSI proposal uh, to its, uh, what is commendable about it is that it was introduced in a bipartisan way. And so it's possible that, um, you know, there were a lot of constituencies that needed to uh, sort of be satisfied for that bill to be able to be presented um, with the support of both parties, which in the current environment, um, you know, uh, 
is is a laudable uh, achievement. Um, you had asked Bobby earlier if there was if there was a second thing, uh, sort of a proposal out there that um, that I hope uh, does not go forward. And on that point, um, I would mention the proposals to add the institutional office of special advocate to the FISA court. So again, as we mentioned in the beginning, there are sort of two competing proposals um, in broad categories. One to add this institutional offices that would sort of be like a public defender's office for the FISA court. And this proposal, um, you know, as I've written and said elsewhere, uh, well, would, uh, would add significant bureaucracy uh, that would not necessarily be tailored to the cases that most need it. So some of the proposals would have this Office of Special Advocate, you know, have the ability to insert itself into any case, to appeal and things like that. And that really could dramatically sort of change the um, effectiveness of the FISA court. The counter proposals that are on the table are to enable the court to appoint some sort of advocate um, amicus, whether that would be if there was a, a legal issue that the court wanted additional views on, or even a technological matter um, that it wanted additional views on, it could do that. And Judge Bates, the presiding, uh, the former presiding judge of the FISA court, actually, um, uh, in his capacity, uh, wrote a letter to Congress saying that this institutional, the, the first proposal, the institutional office of special advocate, from uh, the judge's perspective, actually, would potentially be both unnecessary and potentially counterproductive. So that's one that I hope um, is abandoned in light of other options. But, I mean, as a practical matter, we think the special advocate is going to be inserting itself into 1,500 applications for a, you know, a targeted electronic surveillance order on, on, a, on a particular person. It seems like that, I mean, right, no one thinks that's necessary, but but... I, I wouldn't expect them to get involved in those either. You get expect them involved in, involved in you know very sort of large pro programmatic authorizations where it seems like a couple of days of extra overhead, you know, probably probably worth the candle. Sounds like you guys agree on the basic principle there, but are unsure on whether to err on the side of not establishing an institution that might get over involved, or let's make sure it's there so that it can be involved where it needs to be involved. Uh -huh. Let's get you guys involved. We have a little bit of time left on the clock. Are there things you want to see in reform or hope you do not see in reform? Margo? I'm just thinking about something um, you said, Carrie, in the course of this, which was that, gosh, there hasn't been um, evidence of willful uh, uh, violations of the rules. And I'm wondering um, why that's the question. I mean, why do, do we think, if there was a small but willful violation of the rule, would that be worse than a big but inadvertent violation of the rule? And it, why? I, so I guess in thinking about the path forward, I've heard a lot of people talk about um, the mens rea of the folks at NSA as if it matters, and I, I don't understand why it does. So I just, I wondered about that. Well, I think the, the, the reason that I raise that in terms of, um, you know, there haven't been allegations, uh, sort of realized allegations of uh, abuse or willful violation sort of goes to the question of what problem is it that we're trying to fix. And so if we're not trying to fix uh, sort of identified problems or things that, that were done wrong, then how does a proposal to uh, cabin the categories of intelligence information that we're collecting about, how does that respond to the concerns that are currently being addressed? Why would advanced court approval of queries for telephone records respond to the 
concerns that are being expressed. So I think that that's why I raise that because I think there is a legitimate question between what are the proposals that have been propo uh, that are on the table, for example, with respect to transparency, which I think really I think the proposals on transparency really do get at um, the, uh, the the problematic issues that have been raised. Um, the one of that that the public is not able to um, you know doesn't didn't have enough information at its hand to provide confidence. So I think you know the transparency propose, proposals. Um, I actually get a, am, am somewhat concerned that the uh, substantial focus on this one telephone metadata program will perhaps push some of these transparency proposals aside and, and they will sort of fall by the wayside. And I think those actually are perhaps more responsive um, to some of the actual concerns that have been realized. I mean, also, I mean, I touched on this earlier, but, um, you know, if you look sort of historically at the kind of abuses that you were sort of um, the paradigmatic thing we're trying to avoid. Um, you know, in a lot of those cases, there's nothing that sort of happened internally um, that you could you could call the the willful abuse. If you, you know, reading someone's mind and saying, "Why did you did you access this for a, a good reason or a bad one?" It's um, you know, there's information collected maybe for some colorable foreign intelligence purpose, and then the abusive part is um, so this was then shared with the White House, let's say, for, for purposes of political intelligence, um, and that's that's sort of not something that you can. Right, so that's going to show up inside the box, um, right? That has to do with what is in someone's brain and what they do with the information, um, you know, after they leave the office. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just, it seems to me that the the um, the sort of structural reason to ensure that you know lots of information isn't there to be misused um, um, isn't that you've spotted particular cases of it, um, you know, you know, in, in the recent past. General? Thanks. Julian, if I heard you correctly, I think that you were saying that our external collection uh, ought to be focused on state actors because that's where the preponderance of the threat lies. But I wonder how we reconcile that with the uh, concern that we have with non-state actors uh, and they not be formalized uh, within a governmental structure. No, so what I was saying was that the, um, right, the, the, the change in the rules, you know, it, it, to some extent makes sense in the context of a shift in the kind of collection we're doing where um, you know, it would make less sense to have more stringent protections for foreign and person information in the context of, let's say, you know, Cold War type surveillance where all, you know, the, the majority of the people you're collecting on are you know, people who work for the Russian government, let's say. Um, and that when it starts to be the case that um, you're collecting on you know, large, you know, larger numbers of ordinary people to figure out who is um, a malicious non-state actor, or you're collecting on you know people who work in telecommunications infrastructures to enhance their intelligence capabilities. Uh, you, know, you know, so civilian telecommunications infrastructures. That the as the as the sort of aperture of collection broadens, um, the kind of back end the the urgency of back end restrictions on uh, on that data becomes greater. Does that make sense? Right, so I'm saying it's because, it's because we're collecting on lots of non-state actors now um, in, in a way that was probably less the case in the past. Tim? Um, I guess I'd like to propose maybe a, a compromise on this issue of how bad does the violation have to be before we care about it and say that, that maybe those who are worried about um, privacy and civil liberties 
have a point here that violations don't have to be willful and abusive and there could be real concern about even potential violations or unintentional systemic violations. Um, but the sort of on the flip side, uh, you know, the standard of whether there's value in, in the program can't be a but, you know, whether it was the but for uh, uh, cause of preventing a terrorist attack. You know, it seems to me those are both artificial standards in a way. And that our, our uh, you know, if, if Julian would agree that, you know, a program can be useful even if it wasn't the but-for cause of presenting a terrorist attack, would, would carry take that in exchange for agreeing that maybe potential violations are also something to be worried about and, and, and we don't have to solve only the problems that have actually happened already? So, well, you know, I, I think the... Um, <laughs> well, I, you know, I don't... I don't so one, I think you know that that stand that to the extent that that is a, a standard that's imposed, I think is because right after the disclosure of the 215 program, the government rolled out this claim about 54 disrupted terror events, which people took to mean, pl mean plots ended up including a lot of you know material support cases. But um, um, to the extent that's a standard, it's, it, that that's I think because that's an own goal, right? I mean, it's a standard that they decided to use um, to demonstrate the the utility of the program. Um, I think the PCLOB report is, again, you know, reasonably, you know, sort of sophisticated about this, recognizes that, um, you know, being the but-for um, is, uh, you know, is only one kind of utility you can provide to an investigation. Um, and so, right, so obviously there are a lot of other ways uh, information can be useful. Um, I would sort of, you know, dig in my cleats a little bit on, on one point, which is um, what you do want to be thinking about is sort of the marginal utility. Um, so not just, well, you know, would a terrorist attack have happened but for this particular piece of information? But you do want to be sort of asking not just, um, well, is information we've obtained under this authority useful, um, but, uh, you know, how much marginal gain are we getting relative to a less intrusive authority? So, you know, if you had a general warrant, you would, of course, get um, tons of useful information that would help, help you make a lot of criminal cases. Um, the question is, what are you getting relative to what you could get with specific warrants? Um, and so uh, to the extent there's a but-for there, um, I, um, it should be a, that, that, that kind of condition or question should be asked um, only to establish that um, the authority that you're using here is giving you a substantial gain over um, a narrower authority that would you know, give you 95% you know, of, um, of the value with, you know, with 5% of the collection or intrusion. Carrie, I'll give you the last word. Okay, sure. So um, so I guess the way I would respond to that is, um, first, I think it's worth um, considering that some of the proposals, um, for example, there are proposals on the table to uh, add connection to for, uh, agent of a foreign power for the records checks. Um, you know, there are proposals to add these additional layers of FISA court approval. There are um, you know, lots of more procedures that are going to be uh, implemented. And so I think part of what I'm suggesting is that uh, we should tread carefully in terms of adding much more procedures, much more process. Um, in some cases, they're not here, I've, I've heard, but, but in other, uh, you know, events like this, I've heard it suggested that, you know, we go back to sort of agent of a porn power standards and sort of raising, re-raising standards to pre-9-11 standards in, a, in some contexts. And so I think uh, 
you know, we just need to have our eyes open in terms of if that's the way that the direction this conversation is going, um, those additional bureaucratic procedures and processes and standards and will have consequences. Um, and so we need to be mindful of that. But certainly on sort of the compliance incidents piece, having been someone who spent many years uh, conducting the oversight and compliance and at the very granular level reviewing uh, the activities of NSA to ensure their compliance um, and their reporting with compliance matters, you know, I certainly understand the value of, uh, you know, being knowledgeable about those compliance incidents and, and being able to, uh, you know, correct them and that there's not only sort of one type of compliance incident that is important or, or not important. But, um, but again, what we, what we haven't seen is any suggestion of sort of strategic level, 1970s era, um, you know, abuses of the system. And so our, uh, our proposals to reform should take that into account. We've talked so much about institutional efficacy, and I would be remiss if I didn't point out at this point that the institution of the Strauss Center, which is partnered with the Clement Center in putting on this event, uh, depends and runs on its personnel. And if you feel that this event has gone smoothly uh, and it's set up in the past day and a half, that's entirely because of the extraordinary people that, that work with me, Ashley Moran, Andrew Earhart, Jessica Mahoney, and Dominique Thuo. Uh, all deserve a round of applause for making this run so smoothly. And, and, of course, what also ran smoothly was this panel, and thank you very much to Julian and Carrie. And we are concluded. <laughs>